welcome to Counter Narratives, a podcast about multicultural heritage collections, storytelling, and representation in galleries, libraries, archives, museums, and beyond. This podcast is part of a larger project to highlight the work of the Andrew W. Mellon Cultural Heritage Fellows based at the Rare Book School. I am your host, Gina DuVernay. I am a librarian, archivist, and cultural consultant, and I'm involved in numerous activities and initiatives that advocate for the collection, stewardship, accessibility, and discoverability of resources related to African-American history and culture. I'm currently pursuing a PhD in humanities at Clark Atlanta University. On this episode of the podcast, we will be talking about hidden black history and antebellum family collections, collecting legacy, conscious editing, as well as Afro-Asian relationality, Asian and Asian Americans at North Carolina State and absences in the archives. Our first guest is Megan Alston. She is a project archivist with the Southern Historical Collection at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Wilson Special Collections Library. In this role, she provides access to legacy collections. Welcome, Megan. Hi. Today, what did you want to discuss with us? So today I'm going to talk a bit about the Southern Historical Collections, legacy collecting, um, finding a description, and how that combination has created a particular narrative and the impact that that narrative has had on the SHC's material um, documenting the African-American experience. The first thing I'd like to do is talk about a really interesting letter that is in one of our collections. It is. It was written in 1859 by a woman named Mae Brown to a man named A.L. Alexander. And as it turns out, Mae Brown is an enslaved woman and A.L. Alexander is her former enslaver. And just like off off top, off the bat, um, that's a pretty remarkable um, find because, um, as we know, literacy among um, enslaved people was discouraged and illegal. Um, so the letter in itself um, is really remarkable. But in the letter, um, May Brown is writing to Alexander in the hopes that he will purchase her and return her to her family. She talks about how she was sold by a man named Brown. Somehow, um, the events aren't clear. She ended up um, in jail at one point in time. And she talks about how she was purchased from the jail by a man named T. Tunison and has gone to work on his plantation. But she absolutely cannot stand it. Um, He's trying to force her to work for his wife, but Mae Brown says nothing she does can please the wife, and she absolutely refuses to go back there to work. And she's writing to Alexander in hopes that he will purchase her out of the situation. That is actually really interesting. Um, Like I said, the letter in and of itself shows resistance. And then she also talks about how she is like actively resisting at the Tennyson plantation 
And she is, you know, actively trying to get out of that situation, which I think is really remarkable and just admirable. And it's really, you know, amazing to be able to see that written down um, in a letter. Absolutely. That's very, very interesting. Uh, what, what is the provenance of the letter? Where did it come from? So this letter is found in the Alexander and Hillhouse family papers, um, which are papers from the descendants of A.L. Alexander and related families. And it's one of about 600 collections in the SAC that we refer to as family papers or antebellum collections or slavery era records. We have a few names for them. And these are collections that spanned often hundreds of years um, anywhere from like the 1700s through the early 2000s. And these collections primarily concern themselves with the lives of, uh, documenting the lives of members and descendants of prominent old Southern families. And these collections um, were really the foundation of the SHC, especially in its early decades. Well, can you talk a little bit about that early collecting and its legacy? Sure. So the SHC, the Southern Historical Collection, was established 1929-1930 to be this great repository of the U.S. South. Today, the SHC has a really diverse collecting scope, um, but <laughs> I was in the beginning, um, as you can imagine, that you know, definitely was not the case. Um, the collection's founding director was a historian by the name of J.G. Derulock Hamilton. And J.G. Derulock Hamilton was a member of the Dunning School of History, which was a really conservative um, group of scholars around the turn of the century that thought that the South was better before the war that Reconstruction and you know African Americans getting the vote was the worst thing to happen. So basically, when Hamilton became the director of the SHC, he very narrowly you know collected these family papers to support his theory of a great South um, and the glory of the South um, before the Civil War. And the consequences of this early collecting is that, you know, antebellum and Civil War, specifically Confederate material, is really what the SHC was known for and in some ways still known for. So one of the lingering legacies of that is the narrative that these antebellum collections or even the SHC writ large isn't really for researchers who uh, want to study the material, but from the perspective of the enslaved or genealogists who you know, want to look at these family papers and trace their ancestors back through slavery. I see. Okay. What was uh, your first experience with one of these antebellum collections? And did you have that same impression? Yeah, uh, unfortunately I did. Um, my first experience with these collections and their finding aids was during a focus group that was 
examining the language of the description and, you know, trying to decide, you know, what stuck out, what didn't work, what was problematic. And initially during the focus group, I got really excited because the particular collection that we were looking at and the particular finding aid that we were looking at, it had a lot of names and places that were significant to my own family. So I went into it thinking, oh, I'm, you know, going to be able to share with my cousins like this great resource where they'll be able to, you know, trace some of their family history. Um, And I was like super excited. But as I read the document and was going through and looking, um, I, you know, instantly, almost instantly realized that, mm, wait, um, this, the way this is described, this collection, this finding it might not be for me because while there was all this intense and rich detail that talked about the donor's family and their descendants and like literally anything you can imagine, when it came to the mentions of enslaved people and what records existed within the collection, it was so vague that, you know, I I had no idea really um, what was in there. And so I came away with the impression that, you know, if you have two descendants, um, that, you know, come from this family, um, one who is descended from the donor's family, there's like all this great information to like walk you through and basically spoon feed you, you know, where you need to look for different information. But if you were coming at it as a descendant um, of someone who was enslaved, there was just like almost scraps. And, you know, you really had to work super hard to be able to to find material that was relevant to you and your research. Megan, what do you want people to know about these collections? My initial impression of these collections were that they really weren't for people who were, you know, studying slavery, you know, from the perspective of the enslaved or, you know, coming at it from a genealogical perspective. But as I began to, you know, work more closely with these collections, I realized that's not actually the case, that in a lot of these antebellum collections, they have a wealth of material um, that, you know, touches on the lives and experiences of enslaved people. You know, there are more letters written by um, enslaved people in different collections. There are, you know, lists of names with ages and relatives. There are, you know, bills of sale and indentures that, you know, help track where different people were, you know, sold off to and where they might um, have landed. And there are even, you know, birth records and and ledgers that talk about, you know, illnesses and and medical treatments that um, that enslaved people receive. So there's some really rich info. But the problem and the disconnect stems from the fact that the way these collections were thought of and described really obscured the fact that there was all this, you know, rich information there for, you know, people who were interested in in studying enslaved people. Absolutely. Um, What is being done to change this? So reworking the slavery era records and the description is definitely a priority um, for my colleagues and I. Since 2018, 2019, 
um, the library's technical services department, which is responsible for you know processing and describing um, collections, has really been experimenting and implementing a number of ways to you know surface and highlight um, this material that had you know previously you know been buried. Um, it with lack of description or just really vague description. So some of that, um, some of that activity, some of those activities include, um, you know, moving mentions of enslaved people higher up in the finding aid so that it is, you know, immediately apparent that hey, um, I want to be on the lookout for um, documents related to enslaved people. Um, it also um, includes when you know possible finding a name and putting that name in the finding aid so people you know know specifically who was documented for example that may brown letter um in the reworked version of the finding aid you know it clearly states that you know there's a letter from may brown written in 1859 and it's like in this folder and then um they've also been experimenting with adding a, a local subject heading to these collections that is something like 18th century records of slavery, 19th century records of slavery, so that, you know, people can have like a global way to be able to search and find, you know, all the collections with, you know, this type of material. Um, and then finally, uh, the library's um, Conscious Editing Steering Committee, which was a group charged with examining how you know language is used, not just in collection description finding aids, but throughout the library. Um, that group charged um, a task team specifically to look at the problematic language that is often used in these groups, this group of finding aids, and to you know come up with recommendations to um, improve their accessibility for um, African American scholars and, and genealogists. And so um, I was on that that task team for um, the six months that it ran, and we came up with um, a number of recommendations that we are um, starting to implement and and had like different phases um, that range from um, finding and listing out all the collections that have material related to enslaved people to, you know, at a later date and, you know, sometime in the future, um, creating um, a database where people will be able to, you know, search for names of um, their ancestors. Um, so it's it's really complex work and that work is made harder by like the sheer amount of collections um, that we have, but it's something that the library as a whole um, is committed to and we're working really hard to make these improvements for the future. That's wonderful. Uh, you and your colleagues certainly are doing very important work, and we look forward to to these upcoming changes. Um, thank you so much for sharing this this very interesting and valuable information with us. We really appreciate it. All right, moving on. Next, we have a, another fascinating guest, Victor Betts. 
Victor Betts is the Student Success Librarian for Special Collections at North Carolina State University Libraries, which is located in Raleigh, North Carolina. He provides archival literacy instruction, conducts community outreach, and curates both digital and physical exhibits using collections from the university's archives that focus on historically underrepresented communities. Victor, welcome and thanks for being here today. Hey, Gina, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, Victor, you wanted to begin the conversations talking about Justina Williams and Dr. Kenichi Kojima. Am I saying the names right? Yes, that's correct. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. Well, what, what would you like to discuss with us about them today? You know, what tell us about them and your interest in them. Yeah, no, thanks for asking. You know, I thought I'd start off with that story first about these uh, two figures. I started working uh, in my libraries or in special collections department in 2019. Um, and one of my first tasks um, was to find any additional photographs related to um, Justina Williams. Justina Williams is an important figure on campus, um, in, our, in campus university history, um, because she was the first African-American woman who was hired as an academic staff member. Um, and she worked in the Department of Genetics um, Drosophila Research Lab, which basically she did research on fruit fly and gene mutation. Um, and during this time, you know, it's, it's Jim Crow South. Um, and so it's really significant that she's the first black woman academic staff uh, person to be hired and work for the university. Um, and prior to her appointment, um, you know, there were African-Americans working and mostly men. Those positions were mostly custodial or food related uh, service positions. So um, it was a really big deal um, that, you know, the work that she did and, and in the circumstances that she was um, uh, appointed uh, for. Um, and then so my search basically sort of uh, led me nowhere and there really wasn't any additional traces or records of her in terms in terms of in terms of photographic images. Um, but as I was looking through sort of the uh, collections of the genetics department, I was finding more and more um, records re related to Asian and Asian American researchers. And I was like, oh, this is very interesting. You know, here I am finding an sort of an abundance almost, right, com relatively speaking, um, of records on um, Asians and Asian Americans, yet at the institutional level, we don't really see a whole lot, right? Um, and then so that really was a catalyst for me to actually um, look into um, uh, the history of Asians and Asian Americans on our campus. And it also turned out um, with my research that Justina Williams worked for um, uh, an Asian uh, uh, researcher, right? Um, whose name was Kenichi Kojima. Um, and Kenichi Kojima um, was a, a Japanese uh, a faculty member. He actually started out as a graduate student in, um, at NC State uh, back in 1958. Um, and then he worked his way up. Um, and then so uh, when Justina got hired, she was assigned to work in his lab, right? And from my perspective, I'm kind of knowing, looking at the Jim Crow South and then African-American history and African-American experience, as well as or simultaneously um, the Asian and Asian-American experience in the U.S., I don't think it's a coincidence that she was um, 
working in his lab compared to you know the other white researchers and faculty members who are working there right um and so for me i really see that as sort of a afro-asian relationality um behind that those choices right and the reasons why she worked in her, um, his lab okay wonderful so you weren't even looking for these um materials so what was it like for you to stumble upon them yeah, it was actually, you know, uh, surprising, but also exciting, right? Because, it, you know, my initial search for what I was looking for really led me uh, to find, you know, uh, records and voices and stories of people who were really, who were not being represented or definitely not being highlighted um, on our campus. You know, if you, when you actually look at sort of the more um, dominant narratives of the university to write and sort of the rememberings and the retelling of the university stories like asian and asian americans are really not there with this there's a, there's a clear absence right but but these historical records show that there's a really deep history of uh, the accomplishments and contributions of asians and asian americans on campus so i really wanted to bring light to that and really center um their voices as much as possible um, so yeah, I'm, you know, since then I've been able to really sort of get the word out and slowly work on projects and really showcasing the results of my archival research. So it's been really exciting and it's still sort of continuing in, in many ways. That's wonderful. Um, what uh, images or materials stood out to you from your research into the history of Asians and Asians Americans at NC State? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think our listeners will probably be interested to know that the first um, Asian student at, at NC State um, graduated um, in 1898, right? And his name was Tesaku and He was a Japanese um, student. I mean, he was the only <laughs> Asian student on campus during this time period. So you can imagine how like isolating it must have been for him, and also, um, you know, what kind of things he was really, how, you know, how did he navigate the world, especially you know the American South? Um, and uh, there's a picture of him in the graduating class. I think there's about like uh, maybe like eight or nine graduates. Maybe I can't I can't recall. Um, but this is a really black and white picture of him, and he just standing there, and there he is, this, this Asian student in the line of, you know, this white students and uh, administrators and such. Um, another picture that I found um, in my archival research um, is sort of the involvement of the university in sort of the global Pacific or the in, in Asia, right? But in, in particular, I, I came across two photographs of former Filipino president and Ferdinand Marcos, right? And he's a very controversial figure. He was the former dictator of the Philippines, you know, who really instated uh, martial law in the Philippines, right? Um, and obviously his his sons are really making a resurgence in the Philippines currently in the political landscape of the Philippines. Um, but, you know, uh, growing up, hearing and learning about Ferdinand Marcos, I've always seen like older pictures of him when he was an older person, but uh, to we have two photographs of him when he's really young, um, and I've never seen young photos of Fernand Marcos, so that was really interesting to see, but also kind of seeing sort of the role that uh, NC State, um, particularly the International Farm Youth Exchange delegates, who you know went to the Philippines, um, and posed, and you know took pictures with Fernand Marcos while they were like you know planting the new miracle rice in the Philippines, which is going to help the industrialization of the agricultural business in the Philippines during the 60s, right? Um, and also um, another picture of him with 4-H members. Um, uh, and again, he's, he's super young, so that's really exciting to see. Um, so yeah, I think those are the two. Um, and Oh, and also lastly, I, I wanted to say there's a lot of unnamed um, uh uh, students and uh, faculty members, uh, pictures of them in, in the archives, right? 
um, and we don't know anything about them, right? So, you know, I'm also really interested in, in those stories and those individuals who we do not have the information for, right? And kind of really thinking critically about sort of the gaps and silences and absence in an archives that exist and how do we sort of really um, um, provide a more complete uh, picture of the historical record? Um, and you know, what kinds of things can we do moving forward to really um, capture the, the voices and and stories of um, historically underrepresented communities and archives. Yeah, that work is ongoing, but you have been capturing some of that. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about some of the exhibits you created using those collections? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the things um, I've been able to do in my libraries is, um, you know, gather all the uh, the um images and information and data that I've really um, compiled through my research and um, really utilize our digital exhibit spaces, right, to create um, uh, digital exhibits one. So for example, we have a visualization studio at our libraries, which is a 360 degrees um, a studio um, with high, uh, high resolution projectors, right? Um, and so uh, uh, viewers can have really an immersive experience with these historical records, right? And another way for for our users and researchers is um, to really interact with with um, archival materials. So they'll be able to see images. Um, they'll be able to see oral histories, right, of that exist in the archives. Um, so I, I hope to um, just uh, want to raise raise awareness um, for folks about that. This sort of the invisible history of Asian and Asian Americans here on campus and also this American South, right? Because we don't, I, don't, I think for most people, um, you know, Raleigh or this, uh, the, the South um, is, not a, is not a big metropolitan area or a hub for the Asian Americans, right? But when you actually look at the history, there's a deep history and a growing booming population um, here specifically in the Triangle um, for Asian and Asian Americans, especially with the growing tech industry and, and businesses as well too. Um, and then the other things we're doing with this uh, research um, and this from this research on top of the digital exhibit is hopefully creating a physical exhibit in the future as well, or really combining a multimedia um, exhibition, right? So using both the digital, the historical record, but also collecting new stuff from our current um, um, community, right? Um, so I'm uh, currently undergoing a curating project where we're trying to collect um, materials from our Asian and Asian American community, um, as well as creating a space for, for folks to actually even create materials as well, too. So if they don't, if they're not quite sure um, about donating materials, you know, whether it be like, you know, um, artwork or photographs or, you know, any sort of administrative records, um, we also hope to provide a space for them to actually create things that it really lends to their own voice. Okay, that's wonderful. Um, what what advice would you give someone who, who also encounters these, uh, you know, absences in the archives, these silences in the archives? Yeah, you know, Silences in the archives and sort of absences in the archives, I think, at least from an archivist perspective, right? I think we can perhaps be fixated um, on like identifying the, the gaps and silences in the archives. And that's great, right? Because that needs to be acknowledged. But I think the real work really comes from like, you know, what you want to do with those in, in those moments where you find these gaps in, in the records, right? particularly with historically underrepresented communities. Um, and I, I would start out 
advise folks to actually um, not be so reactive and try to like be reactive and kind of just hurry up and try to collect things from from people, right? To try to try to recruit those gaps somehow, right? Uh, but to actually listen to the committee members and actually see what their needs and their values and what they would like, what kind of relationship they would want with the archives, right? Because as we all know, um, the archives has a deep history of, you know, extracting from um, marginalized and minoritized communities. Um, so in, in an effort to not try to recreate that practice, right? Really um, prioritizing um, um, community building and establishing that rapport. Um, to figure out sort of a, a collective um, goal of, 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 of memory building and, and preserving um, stories from the communities. Um, and also, you know, using some imagination and creativity, right? We don't always have to, like, you know, collect photographs or, or artwork or, you know, materials or things, right? Um, what sort of like, innovative ways or new ways can we sort of um, collect stories um, from such populations? So... That's some of the ways that I'm still kind of thinking through um, and um, hope that others will as well, um, as well. Great, great. All right, well, what are, your, what are you working on now? What are your plans now? Yeah, so, you know, we recently received a mini grant um, to uh, document uh, uh, student voices on our campus, right? And actually starting off with um, the Asian and Asian American populations. So, um, you know, we're also sort of as a great timing too, because I'm also planning for a piece of Heritage Month, which is um, Asian Pacific Islander South Asian American Month on our campus, at least that's what we're calling it. Um, and so we have a couple of events lined up where we're, um, I'm sort of um, unboxing the archives and special collections and showcasing materials that highlight Asian and the Asian Asian American experience on campus. We're also doing some film um, film screenings, uh, film screenings and discussions with faculty partners um, that really delves into the history of uh, the rise, the resurgence of um, anti-Asian hate or API hate. That's you know crimes that are violence and crimes towards this community that's happening recently. Um, and so you know on top of the collections of materials and um, creating materials as well too. So that's an ongoing process, and we hope. Uh, in the next year or so, in the next academic year, that we'll have a culminating event where we have a multimedia um, exhibition to kind of showcase the fruits of our labor. Oh, that'll be great. We can't wait to see that. Thank you so much for your time. This was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you for enlightening us and sharing this information. And that wraps up our talk today on Counter Narratives. We want to thank our guests for being with us today. This episode was brought to you by Rare Book School, Mellon Foundation, Ali Alvis, book historian and cataloger at Type Punch Matrix, and our podcast media consultant, Kelsey Brown. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Counter Narratives. Until next time, take care. My body.